Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. The experience of a rare disease is becoming a much more common occurrence. My guests on the podcast today, Elizabeth Apelles and Rebecca Trahan, are on a mission to make a difference to an increasing number of people. It was a great honor to host them in this conversation. Rebecca Trahan and Elizabeth Apelles, you're very welcome to the show. I'm delighted to be speaking with you today. Today, we want to talk about rare disease and how healthcare can respond to the needs of patients with rare disease. But I want to start with you, Rebecca, because you had a rare disease and you experienced firsthand what it's like when something happens that's completely unexpected. Do you want to tell your story, please? Sure. About 10 years ago, this August, I had my first dissection, SCAD, spontaneous coronary artery dissection. After a long distance run, I had just completed a horse camp in Colorado in August, and I had one more day before I headed back to Texas where I lived and was training for a marathon a few months later. And I thought, I'll get in a long run in this Colorado weather before I head back to hot and humid Texas in August. So I did the run successfully with no problem and was fine, had some lunch, drove to the airport in Denver, which is not really in Denver. But on the way, I had, uh, I was a, a migraine sufferer. So I started to get a blurred vision and an aura. And I thought, oh, darn, I'm having, uh, I'm going to have a migraine. Let me pull over and take my vascular inhibitor before I get all the way to the airport. So I pulled over to the side of the road. And before I could even get out of the car, I had complete classic, what you see on TV, heart attack symptoms. I had the hippopotamus on the chest. I had the blurred vision. I had the sweats. I had both pain radiating down both arms, back pain, which I didn't really know about, but that as well. And, you know, a major case of the sweats, which I think I said, but anyway, I thought, oh no, 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 no. I just ran 16 and a half, 17 miles. This is not happening. I was fit as a fiddle and thought, that's that's ridiculous. And I was in denial. And I have a sister who suffers from panic attacks, and I've never had a panic attack, but I was like, I must be having a panic attack. So I had the iPhone, I had the phone in my hand, ready, 911 punched in, but never push send, which was my biggest mistake ever. And the pain left me, or just I was still wobbly about 45 minutes later. And I went on to fill up the car with gas and went to the airport and went through security and almost passed out. Then went and sat in the Continental Club. It was Continental at that time and told someone, asked the person in front of me, do you have EMS? If I pass out, we call them. I flew back to Texas and boxed and rode and ran and all of that. And six days later, I woke up in the middle of the night. I don't know how I knew I had blurred vision, but I did. And the same episode happened again. And I thought, oh, great, I'm, I'm, this is it, I'm dying. So still denial, like most, I don't know. Anyway, a lot of women, which I've learned, don't go to the hospital when they're having cardiac symptoms. And I went to my medicine cabinet and I knew the rule about taking aspirin. So I took a handful of aspirin and I went back to bed and I was a practicing Buddhist at the time. And I just counted my breaths and I said, if I wake up in the morning, I'm going to call my internist. So. Obviously, I woke up in the morning and made an appointment with the internist that I'd never met before because I had a new insurance plan. And 
She had a 10 o'clock and a two o'clock. Well, I took the two o'clock because I had a lunch date for my company. And so it just bad decision after bad decision. And when I finally got to see her, she was young and a really good internist. But she said, you know, you're a marathoner. I can't imagine you're having a heart attack, but it's not good talk during sending you home with chest pain, which I'm still having. So I'm going to do an echo and then I want to do a nuclear stress. But she just was totally, she didn't deny what was happening, but she didn't really believe it. So sure enough, a couple hours, my insurance balked at the nuclear stress test because I didn't meet the criteria. And you know, here that's difficult. And I was down at the basement where they took those tests and it was the end of the day by the time I finally got in there. And bless the technician's heart, he turned white as a ghost and left the room. <laughs> when I, he said, get dressed, but don't move. And so finally, when I walked out, an empty room was full of people. There were a posse of people waiting for me. And a cardiologist came out and scrubs and put an nitroglycerin patch in my chest. And he said, you know, you need to sit down. We've called the ambulance. You need to be as calm as possible. You're having, your heart is barely beating. We're going to take you to the emergency room where I can cath you. So it just continued. It was the perils of Pauline. And thank goodness he knew what he was doing. He realized once he had me in the cath lab that I was having a dissection. Otherwise, he probably would have ended my life if he had continued to stent me. Then the surgeons were called. I had open heart surgery, triple bypass. I was in the ICU. It was such and go for about 10 days. And now I'm here. (laughs) That's my story. It wasn't until I met somebody who this had actually happened to that I began to really heal. I beat all the odds initially. You know, I did everything perfectly physically, but I was emotionally bereft, you know, because how could this happen to me? And that's why I believe in the project that we're working on and the connection of rare disease survivors and what we go through. And that's really part of the healing process. And we're a very underserved community, but there's a lot of us, one in 10. People have rare disease. So that's kind of it. An amazing story. And I want to, first of all, congratulate you on making it through. But just to emphasize, this is a rare disease. This does not happen to fit young women in the main. It's a relatively rare disease. And that was the problem for you. And that was a problem for your healthcare providers. In fact, your insurance company wasn't impressed that you were having this particular test. So I want to bring Elizabeth Apelles into the conversation now. Elizabeth, this is a not uncommon condition in the sense that one in 10 people have a rare condition. What has been your response to all of this? Well, rare disease, there are a lot of people who have it, but it's so hard to detect. So there are many people walking around the planet, 30 million in the US, 300 million globally that we know about have something wrong with them that could be fixed. And so that includes members of my family and also the business that I run, Greater Than One. We work a lot in the rare disease space. I'm very familiar with patients. And I met Rebecca through a family member, actually, who who has the same disease. And I just wanted to help. So, and I have the capability of helping. My company, Greater Than One, is a healthcare marketing business with a, a technology, enterprise technology offering, and we're able to do this. So we are doing it. And it's been four years in the making. Greater Than One has is, is funded it up until now. 
And it's a technology platform to help patients with rare disease who currently walk around with a xylophone full of paper from one doctor to the other, hoping somebody can figure out what's wrong with them. And we're going to digitize all of that and allow them to access their health records easier. And as importantly, often rare disease is hereditary. So it's about uh, tracking events that happen to you so that future generations can access that information should something similar happen to them. And then the second part of Honeycomb Health, which is driven by the fact that so many of these patients and the rare disease advocacy groups that they start in order to come together don't have funding for research because there just isn't a lot of money in the cure. And so we offer free online storefronts to any rare disease advocacy group that wants help with funding for research. So it's a personal mission, it's a professional mission, and we're going to keep going until we help as many patients as we can. That's a fantastic mission to be on because rare disease from the perspective of clinicians, and I'm a clinician, is a terrifying thing because you're faced with a patient with bizarre symptoms, often things that you don't, you can't connect the dots very easily. And so what you're offering is the capacity to bring information together to track patients through uh, generations in terms of the genetic component, but also to focus on research that potentially could change the outcome, which is astonishing. How has this been received in the healthcare community or have you tracked that data? We have not tracked the data yet. We're still in building mode. I am 100% sure it will be well-received, and Rebecca can talk about her experience with her cardiologist. And I think all doctors want to help, but often they don't have the capacity for these you know, unique, rare, complicated diseases. So, Rebecca, maybe you could talk about how your doctor responds when you come well-informed. Happy to. I did so much damage originally on that. Now I have um, heart failure. So I see a heart failure specialist as well as I have another underlying disease called FMD, fibromuscular dysplasia, also known as rare. But sometimes my doc that I see says it's underdiagnosed, but currently it's in the rare, it's definitely in the rare category. But my cardiologist, Dr. Bargash, she's wonderful. She gets me on TV sometimes or whatever. And they said, what makes Rebecca such a good patient? And she just said, because she's armed with knowledge, she has all of her data, she's collected it, she helps me understand what happened to her. And we are that much ahead of the game uh, when we're trying to make the best plan of action for her. So that meant a lot to me. And I told Elizabeth and I said, we're doing the right thing. We're doing the right thing. (laughs) So that's after, I don't know, eight years of carrying around a folder that weighs about 15 pounds with all my data. And, you know, it's also, Elizabeth mentioned a bit about empowering patients, you know, to realize they own their data and this is their information and this is their story. And how can it help? How can I collect this and share it? So I not only do right by myself and my own healthcare, but possibly, you know, a lot of rare disease is genetic. So my, my people, my family. Yeah, you're right. It's not just you that you would be, you'd be helping, you'd be helping other people people and generations to come. And I can't help thinking that this is a useful model, not just for rare disease, but for many, many other conditions that are not as rare because you find that things get complicated, don't you? You, If you've got diabetes, you've got 
this condition here, which you're dealing with in cardiology and another one that you're dealing with your endocrinologist, something else with an ophthalmologist, and it all needs to connect up. In the old days, it used to be primary care. Certainly when I worked in the NHS, primary care was the repository of all that information. You saw one doctor through from birth to death. That doesn't happen so much anymore. Rebecca, you're shaking your head. What's been your experience? We're super lucky because I know a lot of SCAD survivors don't get diagnosed right away. So me postponing treatment, that's a whole nother story. But having an interventionalist cardiologist that knew that I had a SCAD was rock solid. That got me ahead of the game really quickly. Now, the surgeon who operated on me was, he didn't, he was like, I have to test you for cocaine. I was like, dude, if you only knew, <laughs> there's, I haven't done any of that. So that delayed my surgery, right? I was like, oh, brother. Anyway, it's just so apparent that collecting, having all your information in hand can shorten your journey. Like I said, I was lucky. But from then on, once I got assigned to cardiologists and all of that and started to heal it and it had to go on this FMD journey and more SCAD journey, it was it's hard to find physicians that are really in tune with all that. And then it got complicated by my bad ticker. So it's just, it would be amazing. It is amazing to have all of your data in one place that you can choose who you share with. And I don't have children, but it may help my nephews. It may help research. It may help connect other people to understand the disease a little bit better. And, you know, that's my goal is to help a woman know she's having a SCAD and get her treatment ASAP. You know, that's, if somebody learns from me that, then this has all been worth it. The other thing that, that might be relevant here is when we were doing our interviews with a number of patients, both SCAD and others, what a common theme that I was quite shocked about, especially with the CAD patients, is doctors don't take complications as seriously at the onset as they might should. They minimize the the importance of it. It just, that happened repeatedly. Oh, you're having a bad day or maybe it's your menstrual cycle or something like that. And it's that confusing, it just, it gets confusing. And if a person, a woman or a man or a child could stand up for them themselves and say, no, wait, you know, this is what happened to my mother and my father. So please don't discount this. Can we just take a moment and think about it? Imagine how many lives that might save. Yes, I think I can see that. And as a physician, I would hold up my hand and say, this is very possible that you tend not to see the wood for the trees because you're busy thinking about the normality, which is much more common. It's much more common for it to be something not related to a condition in the main when you're not dealing with something that is rare and complicated. I want to pivot a little bit now, Elizabeth, and talk about the issue that might be bothering people, which is data security. How do we ensure that our data is secure when we're putting all of this very private information onto an online platform? Well, the platform today is both HIPAA and GDPR compliant. So it is as secure as anywhere else. Beyond that, some of the information we will use blockchain technology for, which is probably the most secure you can get. And we're not going to do it for everything because blockchain is so environmentally unfriendly. But for certain things, we will use that technology to store it. 
that's very reassuring. So you're doing everything you possibly can to secure people's data, which is a, an important consideration. I want to go back to you, Rebecca, and ask how this has made a difference in real terms to patients. Do you have stories that you might be able to share? Uh, Scout Alliance is our first storefront, and that will make a difference in their bottom line because we, I design products for them to sell. And being a SCAD survivor, I have a little bit of an intuitive sense of what somebody might wear or want to promote or saying they want, might want to cart around. And to, again, make a difference in these nonprofits that all struggle for money because there's only one pot of money. And uh, here it's, you know, feast or famine. And so we're super excited about giving uh, some of these rare disease communities some agency in raising money. And that I've met so many people with rare disease and, and nothing is more, no one, I should say, and that nothing is more committed than these rare disease communities because they want answers. I have a story of a patient, if you don't mind. It's a family member of mine. It's a, I, it's a, I'm 60 and this is a generation below me, niece or nephew. And I'll just use she. She had pain all over her body. And she was living in Pittsburgh, which is, and going to Carnegie Mellon, one of the greatest schools in the world, a Yale graduate, and was going to the best doctors. And nobody could figure out what was wrong with her. She moved to San Francisco to go to a hospital system. They couldn't figure it out. Her insurance didn't cover the types of doctors she wanted to go see, didn't need, because she didn't know what was wrong with her. Came back to Pittsburgh. They were about to put her on chemotherapy because nobody knew what was wrong with her. And then she went to a, a functional medicine doctor and completely changed the food she ate, which improved measure immensely. And even today, she's got issues that nobody can solve. And as a result, couldn't have a baby, had to use a surrogate, got married, had to use a surrogate because of all the drugs she's on, uh, or he or she, his wife or his, his, her, the husband. And um, it's just been a 20-year horrible journey. And there's, it just, there's no end in sight. So imagine if you could figure this out in the first five years rather than you know, having to suffer through 30 years and probably a lifetime of complications. And that's what we're trying to help. That is such a typical story of people with rare disease, isn't it? That you go on for years if it's not going to end your life imminently as it might have done for you. Rebecca, if it wasn't going to do that, you just struggle on with symptoms and problems that completely make no sense to anybody. But you know in your heart that somewhere, somebody has something similar, somewhere in the country, somewhere in the world. If only you could pool that data as you are now doing and get to some semblance of a name for this, this is SCAD or this is something that we could call something and, and therefore have some sort of treatment for. Or just talk to somebody. You know, oftentimes solutions come from patients themselves that at least help. A connection when you're, when you're beating the odds or when you're struggling physically, but then the emotional aftermath, a lot of docs don't necessarily understand that. And to have somebody who's been where you were or are is just, it gives you a 180. I mean, it really helps. So that's really important part of all of this too. Where to from here for Honeycomb Health? How can we help? How can we promote what you're doing? And 
And where do you see yourself in the next five years? Our storefront engine has a capacity of helping 500 separate rare disease advocacy groups create their own storefront that they could sell any type of product they want. And every purchase is 100% tax deductible because it goes into our foundation, which is a 501c3 dedicated to giving back to those who are underserved. And the profits go directly back to the rare disease advocacy group. So on that front, I hope to have 500 full, everybody, using our store engine to generate money for research. On the platform side, I hope to have finished the platform so that every patient, every family can start aggregating their health, environmental, and medical information in one place, and they can download it and be able to share it with a doctor in an easy way. So that's the hope. I agree with everything Elizabeth said 100%. And then we're taking the show a little bit on the road. I'm going to go out West and try to meet rare disease survivors, bring to them honeycomb and the knowledge, build up some promotion for the app and the storefronts and collect some stories and try to raise some money so we can keep going. Greater than one because of COVID has walloped us. We can't fund it this year. So we're hoping to get million people to give $5 each, 500000 to give $10 each, some combination thereof. All of it, 100% goes to Honeycomb Health, period. Honeycomb Health. Why Honeycomb Health? And the reason for the name Honeycomb is because if you think about a honeycomb and the various kind of compartments, that's very much about what rare disease patients face in terms of all the different types of content. The second application for it is the hive, which is generational, mother, father, cousin, grandchild. And it just made sense. Rebecca is going to road trip to Colorado is our first, and then road trip up Northeast is our second. She's going to be a busy bee. And I like being the change you want to see. So, you know, it's all kind of fun, but we, we, I think it's a great name. It is a fantastic name. Rebecca Trahan and Elizabeth Apelli, thank you so much for joining me today. We wish you all the very best and more power to Honeycomb Hill. Thank you. Thank you very much. We appreciate your interest. We do. Thank you. The Health Design Podcast, sponsored by the Patient and Physician Advocacy Alliance. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com.